on the Dallas Opera Network. You're listening to Opera Box Score. Uh, let's get ready to rumble! Wherever you are, however you're listening, it's America's talk radio show about opera. It's Opera Box Score. I'm your host, George Cedarquist, joined by Oliver Camacho, Weston Williams, and Ashley Hardgrave. Season seven starts right now. This week, Oliver goes inside the huddle with a star soprano who sometimes feels like a circus performer with all the high-flying, high-pressure roles she sings. Plus, she compares singing Lucia di Lammermoor to giving birth. Yep, the incredible Erin Morley. It's a big get for the season opener plus two-minute drill. We repeat the mantra yet again. Grumpy old dad man, no kids at the opera. No, not even if they're on stage. It is so great to be back with the whole team. I'm so glad that Matt Cummings has finally left the show. Kidding, of course. <laughs> it is also great to be back on the Dallas Opera Network. And look, if you're watching on TDO, here's what you want to do. You want to subscribe to the podcast on Stitcher Radio. You can even just favorite the show on Apple Podcasts. That way you get the full entire thing. So much to catch up on. This is going to be such a great show. This is going to be such a great season. We're going to start at the top and work our way down. Oliver Camacho. (laughs) I knew it. (laughs) So much heartbreak in this year's US Open. Uh, Naomi Osaka went out early uh, to the eventual eventual finalist of the U.S. Open. The women's draw is a mess right now without Serena Williams. Um, but all the young people are coming through and actually the final match and the final two, the finalists were really exciting to watch. Leila Fernandez from Canada who turned 19 during the tournament and the eventual winner, wow. the qualifier, Emma Raducanu from England. And a it was just that they're both of Asian descent or have Asian in their background. So I'm like, yes, it's time for the Asians to take over this white sport. Um, and then in the men's draw, um, heartbreaker early on, um, Stefanos Tsitsipas, my future husband, lost early. Um, no, Oliver, I'm so sorry. I know, I know. Um, I have a new love or a new additional love. Uh, his name is Felix Oje Aliasim. Uh, he is beautiful and he made it all the way to the semis and there are so many good things ahead for him, including being my other husband. Uh, and (laughs) sort of something wonderful, but sad that happened is that Novak Djokovic was assumed to complete the calendar year grand slam, but he fell to the eventual winner, Daniel Medvedev, who wins his first grand slam and stops uh, history from happening. Uh, it was tragic. And no- Novak Djokovic, who is like the most unbeatable player in the past like five years, he cried into his towel. And it was, I actually finally felt for him. I, I have, I've always had like this weird relationship with him. He's, I think he's too robotic and just not. Just not yeah. human not enough, you know? Yeah. Well, he's always been a little bit like Pete Sampras, like no kind of emotion. And finally, with yeah. that loss, we really started to see that. So, uh, Weston Williams here as well. Weston Williams, catch us up. How how have the weeks off treated you? Um, uh, weirdly busy. Uh, I managed to uh jump in on the whole trend of things coming back 
in what may be the last days of the pandemic and uh, got got myself employed, which is exciting. Uh, <laughs> Oliver and I are now co-workers. So if uh, so, it, you I've got the HR forms for you whenever the episode's done, George. You can just sign those and make sure everything's, you know, I's dotted, T's crossed. We should be good to go. I wouldn't touch that with a 10-foot pole, Wesley, but <laughs> Ashley Hardgrave just might. Ashley, <laughs> what's happening? Uh, so many things. Apparently, there's an emergency right outside my window, if you couldn't hear the siren that is blazing <laughs> by us right when you asked my asked how I was doing. I was like, well, I was fine until you came by. Uh, no, things were good. I got a chance to, like see some people and take a little mini vacation, go to the beach, which was amazing. Um, but if we want to talk about like the most amazing thing that happened, it was right, when my go. unranked Razorbacks went <laughs> ahead and beat number 15 Texas this weekend. <laughs> and guys, it wasn't even close. Wow. Uh, it was really incredible. I was actually coming back from a work trip and I was watching the game on the plane from Houston. <laughs> And so I don't know if anybody else was watching, but every now and then you'd hear, <gasps> and it was like collective. So somebody was watching it on the plane. But of course, you don't want to make those noises while you're on a plane. Um, it's just, mm. it was very interesting. But the cool thing about it was like, you know, Texas and Arkansas have this like rivalry that goes back a long time. They haven't been in the same conference for quite some time. Uh, but, you know, with all of this talk of Texas leaving the Big 12 to come and join the cool kids in the SEC, I was like, you might want to rethink that because you <laughs> just got you just got walloped by one of the most questionable teams in the Southeastern <laughs> Conference. But I said it a couple of weeks ago on the listener mailbag. I'm going to say it now. Now that Sam Pittman has been there for a year as the coach of the Razorbacks, he's got a year of coaching and a year of recruiting under his belt. He's really put together an incredible, incredible team, which is good because he needs to raise some money because Arkansas also got fined $100,000 by the SEC for all of the students storming the field in excitement after yes, they beat Texas. Yes, worth every penny, probably. Probably. Uh, here in Chicago, the Bears lose their season opener. Uh, when did Trubisky get replaced by Dalton? I totally missed that. And more to the point, when will Dalton be replaced by Shields? I think that's that's what most Bears fans are looking forward to. Cowboys also lose the openers uh, for the TDO folk to the Bucks. Let's get Season 7 going. The stars have aligned. First show of our Season 7 the opera houses are opening up again as we launch the 2021-2022 season. We're going to be talking about this all year long, I'm sure. We want to try and just unpack a little bit, starting here in Chicago, opening the conversation up to the whole nation about what is this season going to look like, Oliver Camacho? What gives you pause for thought? Where, where are your eyes and your ears and your heart? Where are they looking first and what's on your mind? Well, I know that we're going to pass over to Ashley any second now to talk about what we all watched over the weekend, but <laughs> it's coming up this weekend in Chicago. It's a good example of um, what companies are doing to respond to the new situation. Uh, Chicago Opera Theater will open their season with a concert performance, 60% capacity mm. of Carmen, which is not in their repertory at all. But I spoke to Lydia Ankovskaya. And she said, you know what, you know, we needed to figure out what we we're going to do this year. We had to change our plan for the original show that was going to be on the calendar. And she's friends with Jamie Barton. And they, she, Jamie Barton has always wanted to sing Carmen and nobody has offered her that chance. Is okay, well, we're going to do it in Chicago. And we're going to do a concert version. And we're going to have Stephanie Blythe sing Don Jose. <laughs> Literally phenomenal. 
so, I cannot tell you how excited yeah. I am about so, this. So uh, Stephanie, please continue. <laughs> so Stephanie Blythe does this tenor stick. Her name is Blythely Oratonio, I think is the name. I think and, so. Yeah. yeah, and so Stephanie Blythe actually has a legit dramatic tenor voice, and she wants to sing Cavaradossi. Um, and Lydia Nkowska was like, well... I don't know if we can do a Tosca here, but we can do this weird ass Carmen. So, <laughs> so that's <laughs> happening just in a couple of days from now. By the time you hear this podcast, it will be really happening. And at the same time, Lyric Opera of Chicago is trying to cautiously reopen. Uh, I think they're also doing limited capacity. I don't even know if they're doing that, but uh, they're opening I with like their new are. seats. But that we've been talking about mm-hmm, their brand, mm-hmm. their brand. That's how they spent their COVID installing new chairs. You get to find out if I uh, if I actually fit in the new seats, which will be exciting. And they have none other than Sandra Rabinowski singing Lady Macbeth. And we talked about this two years ago when Sandra was supposed to make her role debut at Opera Philadelphia singing Lady Macbeth. But then 2020 happened, as you know, and that right. got canceled so Sandra's actually making this very important role debut here in chicago so chicagoans are lucky to have Sandra rabinovsky and jamie barton and um stephanie blythe and also eileen perez in the first couple of weeks of the opera season eileen perez and charles casanovo are singing elixir of love right after the opening of lady macbeth it's of, a, of macbeth yeah. it's a strong opening here in chicago ashley does does it get you excited does it give you pause for thought for folks going it- back into venues I mean, uh, I I will answer that question in a moment. Uh, but the first thing I want to say is that it is an embarrassment of riches. Uh, it you know we always you know think of of Chicago as well. Many people that don't live here think of Chicago as like not a metropolitan area. Especially people that I meet from the coast are like, but Chicago's in the Midwest, isn't that farming? And I'm like, not downtown. It's not. We have one of the major cultural centers of the United States. We have the third largest city in the country. Tell them from me. Just you know what. Cram it. <laughs> <laughs> or as Toby would say, kick rocks. <laughs> yes, kick rocks. I, I only cooked, I only uh, cultivated one row of corn this week. What are you talking only, about? I know. I do technically still have tomatoes in my fire escape garden, but you know, we're at, we're nearing the end of the harvest. Um, no, I, does it give me pause? Uh, yes, officially it does. Uh, because being around any group of more than five people at a time currently gives me pause. I was one of those people that did, actually did okay in the pandemic because I was like, oh, I don't like people as much as I thought I did. And if I get to sit in my house with my cat, cool. <laughs> uh, so being around groups of people, I've been slowly kind of trying to reacclimate myself into that environment like I think many of us have. And I, I'll, I'll give you an example. Um, I, I sing a lot of weddings. I'm a cantor. And uh I have been fortunate enough to go back and do some of those for a big chapel up on the north side of the city in a Jesuit university. And I'm up in the loft pretty much by myself with the organist. And one of the wedding photographers like wandered up there and because he's just moving around and doing his job, he's not really paying that much attention. He's just getting to where he needs to get to get the shot. He got close to me. And by close, I mean, he was about here and I jumped. Like that's Mm -hmm. how much it spooked me to have somebody be close to me. So. And, and even when Oliver and I a couple of weeks ago went to the um, the opening of what was the festival, Oliver? I forget. What was Opera it Festival of Chicago. That's it. Thank you. Um, even that. I was so excited to be in the room. Also, it was just fun to have an Oliver hang. But it was so fun to be in the room with live music happening. But I couldn't help but be on edge the entire time because, again, I'm in this group of people that I haven't been in in a while. We have people expelling force from the respiratory systems, even though they're down on the floor and we were up on the second level. So... 
Yeah, yeah, I've got some pause about it, but <laughs> I feel like there are a number of people that are th- being very thoughtful and very genuine in their approach. Um, I know we're going to talk about the Verity Requiem in a little bit, um, but you could see as the as the choristers were coming onto the stage, they were masked. They took down their masks right before the performance began. Uh, there were some members uh, of the orchestra that continued to have their masks on the entire time. So. I think enough people are being thoughtful about it that we can move forward, albeit very slowly. Weston, right. let's expand the convo then to include the Met, get to the the national picture and kind of the the granddaddy of them all. So yeah, the Verdi Equiem, the first time that a show happens inside Lincoln Center since March of, of 2020. Yeah. Have- it, it's 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 one of those one of those moments that, you know. I'm kind of in like two two minds about it. In some ways, seeing it happen, you know, was you know extraordinary. Obviously, I, I didn't get a chance to watch the whole thing, unfortunately. Um, uh, but it was uh, well, neither did anyone else. But we'll talk about that later. Um, <laughs> um, but uh, the um, there, uh, on one hand, I'm like, yes, this is finally it. I can finally see some things. Um, but uh, at the same time, you're know, looking over in Europe, you know, with just like a little bit of caution and a little bit of, you know, thinking things through and making sure the right organizations are funded. They've been having performances, you know, this whole time uh, with relative safety. And it made me kind of sad that I didn't have that. But at the same time, it was so exciting that to see it sort of coming around um i mean this was the first uh during this break was the first time i've seen live music um it, since the beginning of the pandemic i went to uh the lyric in the park and um uh the the pre, sort of a preview show for the lyric and uh also music of the broke where we saw our very own matt cummings that was exciting um who dead uh, to us <laughs> dead to us we'll never see him again unless you all venmo me five hundred dollars <laughs> dear listeners um anyway I, I i do think that there is uh it's a real mix of emotions i i find myself readying myself to buy tickets for you know the season and also like wanting to wait till like the very last second you know uh, there's like this little nagging voice that says, don't spend your money just yet. You know, um, you don't know where it's going to go. I mean, at the very least, uh, the lyric is making a very bold choice <laughs> by opening yeah. the first uh, season since the pandemic with Macbeth. I'm not a superstitious person, but an interesting <laughs> choice. Uh, and uh, but seeing the Met full, um, hopefully safe, everyone was vaccinated um, and performing. uh a requiem that, you know, really is all about, you know, rebirth and things like that is mm. really, really remarkable. But just to state the obvious, um, Europe takes less of a risk uh, in trying to stage stuff because they're not relying on ticket sales and, Absolutely. you know, pri- private donors yeah. to put on shows. So that's why American houses have to be more cautious about when things get started up again. So we are taking a big risk by even planning these seasons and getting these artists into these, you know, opera houses for rehearsals, not knowing if we're going to have to shut it down again because of the Delta variant. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But before we go to our interview, we did just want to rhapsodize on this Verdi Requiem. um, Y'all. That we saw on PBS. Most of us did. (laughs) Like you said, or all of it or none of it. Um, So just seeing that many people on the stage was it gave me feels just seeing them there 
And then Yannick Nézé-Séguin knows this piece so well. And I think he conducted it, it really in does. Philadelphia and he's memorized it. And, you know, they had a camera trained right on him. And even before the first chord, you could see he got into the mood and he was communicating that through the camera. Like, we're going to do this, people, you know. And I felt it. I was glued to the TV that night on, on Saturday. Actually, I was supposed to go see a show here in Chicago, but I decided to go and watch that instead. And there were some technical glitches. And, um, yeah, the mic feed from Misty Copeland wasn't working at first. He hosted it. And there was some sometimes not welcome uh, cutaways to Lincoln Center where they were projecting, like, the movement names. Like, okay, that's fine. But, like... But then there were some cutaways where they just like showed like, you know, the last piece of iron that's preserved in the uh, 9-11 memorial. It's like, oh, and they show names of the people on the memorial and like, and her unborn child. I'm like, oh, God, no. And yeah. And then there was the singing and it was glorious. And Eric Owens like had was and he was filled with the ghost <laughs> and i'll let ashley wants to talk I'll, I'll let you carry I, on ashley. i well i could talk about so many parts of it but I, one other thing i want to like talk about are are the stakes of this and how many multiple stakes there were this is a return to the first performance indoors since the beginning of the pandemic this is the mm-hmm. first time all of these people are around each other since the beginning of the pandemic, we're making music in the way that we did in the before times. We're also doing it on the 20th anniversary of one of the worst terrorist attacks in our country's history. And it's a very deeply personal thing, especially for, New- I mean, for all Americans, but especially for New Yorkers. And so many of the people in that uh, ensemble are, you know, lifelong or very long time New Yorkers. So you have like the emotional weight and stakes of just getting back to work and the joy that you should be feeling and getting to do your job again and that thing that you love. But then you also have the stakes of commemorating this really awful moment of loss. And so it's 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 the nth degree. It's the zenith and the nadir of both ends of the spectrum, you know, ultimate joy and ultimate loss and grief. So just having that sort of weight on your chest when you're even thinking about what all of this represents when you walk in the door or when you turn on your television. You know, anybody who is a musician to an opera fan to whomever, like this this is a big deal. And the amount of nerves that went into that, I can't even imagine how Yannick must have felt in that moment. My God. Um, When it comes to the singing, honey, let's talk about it. I mean, all four of the solos were incredible. Here's what I'll tell you. I... I started to think like, because the Verdi Requiem is a big sing. It's a big sing for everybody. It's a big <laughs> sing for the choristers. It's a big sing for our, all four soloists. Eileen Perez deserves a, a medal and a Grammy and an Oscar and an Emmy, like all at once, <laughs> just for this. In fact, because it was on TV, she might end up getting an Emmy nomination. We'll see. Um, but it, it's it's such a big sing. And to have all of those stakes on top of this, she also just got engaged to so like, you know, lots going on in her life at the moment. And then holy cow to come in and sing the Liberame the way that she sang it. I was I was face down in my couch at one point because I was so overwhelmed. I didn't know what else to do because I was so nervous on like <laughs> yeah. on her behalf. So we have now to, you know how I yeah. felt in Euro 2020. <laughs> so we have to wrap this up. But, but I just hey, want to say course. that all the singers on that stage are technicians. But everyone, every one of them. But I think we would 
probably be safe to say that like Eileen is the one who takes the most risks. And she sang 80% of the Requiem in Loaded Pianissimi, which is not her bread and butter. But she no. just she just went for it. And you could tell how hard she was working. She was sweating, you know. And then yeah. she saved her most savage tone for the Libra May. And I knew that it was coming. But I was thinking, is she going to have voice after singing an hour in Pianissimo? Will she be able to yeah. open up the tone again? And boy, <laughs> did she open up the tone. I, I was like, <laughs> wow. I mean, yeah. And, and as the person on the panel who has sung that piece and sung that role we'll call it because it's basically an operatic role it's aida i mean yeah it is it's it's fully aida and uh coming into the libra it's it's kind of a weirdly it's not anticlimactic but you would assume that the end of a piece would have like all of the soloists and bombast and you know and it does in fact have that but the soprano is the only one that's standing up everybody else is like we're done we're sitting and michelle and uh matt and and eric oh my god they were amazing so like well deserved sit and rest and bring in those accolades but (laughs) to have that moment of like you know you've sung this really really challenging thing and then out of nowhere you have to pull from your hindquarters a c like out of nowhere <laughs> and in 15 <laughs> seconds when the orchestra comes in you're going to know whether or not you did it correctly and by then it's too late if you've you know b- butchered it uh so i have lots of ptsd i don't know if you can tell from singing the libra may um but in those moments it's just like oh god oh god oh god and you know she's going to get it because she's Eileen. I was also okay if she didn't because she'd already done so many amazing things. But yeah, it, it was I, – I really was ready for it to be a little bit dirtier and a little bit rougher just because of all of the aforementioned emotional stakes. I was like, this is not a, a moment where you're listening to this for technical greatness. You're listening to this for the emotion and the commemoration. And then it just so happened that everybody was technically fantastic. So lots more to watch. all around on uh this season as it comes up it, how is it going to play out what's going to happen to it we're going to be talking you through that all season long on the obs inside the huddle it's right now huddle up let's go inside the huddle so we've been saving this interview for our season opener i recorded this last month at santa fe with aaron morley who was at the time singing Titania in A Midsummer Night's Dream. And boy, did she sing it. It was such a great performance. Uh, we're such big fans. We're here at Opera Box Score. And there were so many things I wanted to ask you. You will hear most of our conversation. We're going to start the conversation um, after she told us, told me about how she grew up in a musical family. She played the violin as a child. She was in a children's choir. Her mom was a violinist. Her dad sang in the Mormon Tabernacle Choir. Uh, all of her siblings did something musical. And at an early age, Erin knew she wanted to be a performer. And she studied seriously as a pianist at Eastman before uh, transitioning into singing because of an injury. Uh, we will start the conversation um, as she talks about why it's important to learn how to play an instrument if you want to be a singer or how it could help you. Uh, but before we do, here's a little bit of Erin singing uh, from the live performance of Les Huguenots. Uh, that has been made into a recording uh, with the American Symphony Orchestra. This is the cabaletta of the aria Obopei. Thank you. 
have to acknowledge that most singers come to this art later in life. Um, not all, but many. And and so it, it is, you have to play catch up a little bit. Many singers have to, you know, gain the musical, the musicianship a little bit later in their development. And so that is a thing. I think we have to acknowledge that and give those people grace. But I do, I do also think um, we have to recognize that a lot of successful singers started out as instrumentalists. We do have to we we have to acknowledge that it it can be extremely helpful to a singer to start out as an instrumentalist. I have a lot of young people asking me how how can I prepare my um, myself to be an opera singer someday, and they're like, you know, eleven or twelve. And I, I tell their parents to get them into a choir, um, have them learn a musical instrument. I mean, there's, there's just so much value and so much you can do as a young child to develop those skills that turn into, you know, gold later and can really, really inform your singing. Singing requires the singer to really take care of their body. You know, our bodies are our instruments. And in that way, we are more like athletes than any other instrumentalist. We have to take pristine care of our instruments. Um, and there's a lot to be said about the connections between singing and athleticism. Obviously, you know, we don't rely on strength quite as much. Um, it's more about coordination and it's more about um, the health of the voice. It's, it's more about uh, lung capacity. It's more about um, training your body to do one thing while the, the, you know, another part of your body is, is releasing and another part is, is um, constricting. It's really so much about coordination. And that's why, you know, singing is, is some somewhat like ballet. I had a lot of ballet training and, and the same themes came up where, you know, you're, you're training your body to release in some, in some areas and, and to engage in other areas. And, and singing is very much like that. Um, just different muscles, finer muscles. So yeah, it, it's, it's a totally different thing from, 
from from being a pianist. I definitely had to take care of my body as a pianist, but in in a different way. You know, there's there's a lot to be said for the health of of the whole body when you're using you know, your, your fingers and your arms and your back and your neck and all of the things that are connected to that. Um, so instrumentalists do have to, to take care of their bodies too. Um, however, if they get sick, they can still perform. We don't have that luxury. It's a total, it's a total game changer. So speaking of coordination and uh, all the, you know, tiny little muscles that we have to control as singers. Um, you specialize in repertoire that seems to really test that precision and agility and ability to thin out the chords uh, and still vibrate them. Mm -hmm. This is extremely technical saying, I mean, Zerbinetta, you know, Olympia, Marguerite in Huguenot, um, you know, right. the stuff which has, is that the character? I forget, Margaret de Valois. Yeah, Marguerite de Valois. That has so much. You're going to be doing a Lachme soon. Um, yeah. You're singing Titania here uh, at um, Santa Fe Opera. Um, right. Can you talk to me about how you approach some of this very difficult repertoire and also how you distinguish between bel canto, you know, you sing Gilda, um, and you know, Zerbinetta, which is a much, it's a different beast, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, a lot of my repertoire has a common thread, which is there's a lot of high notes and there's a lot of fast notes. Um, and I think that the, the most common theme is, is the expose, the, the exposure of the voice. It's, even in Sophie, there's not a lot of fast coloratura in Sophie or anything, but she is floating so high in this place where a <laughs> lot of what I sing feels like tightrope walking um, in that it's, it's very exposed and it feels sort of risky and the audience is on the edge of their seat hoping that I'll make it, you know, it feels like it's very exciting. It's like, it's like being in the circus and just, and it's, it's a, an expression of what the human voice is capable of. And so we're celebrating that. Yeah. I, I have, I have for a long time felt a little bit like, like a circus performer. <laughs> Um, but the challenge is to add on to all of that technical prowess that I'm supposed to have to really infuse that with um, the meaning of the music and the um, intention of the composer. And uh, honestly, without that, the music is not so interesting. Um, and I think it is exciting to see somebody, you know, just sort of do something technically amazing, but um, mm -hmm. it's all the more exciting if they can, if if it's done in an artistic way, right? So um, I had a teacher. It was it was my teacher at Eastman, Carol Weber, who really she felt very strongly about about technique first, and um, however, she said. I mean, she used to say this thing, nobody wants to hear a singer who doesn't have their technique down. doesn't matter how much you have to say in your heart. If you don't have your technique down, it's not going to fly. 
we won't feel what you want us to feel, right? So the pathway to artistry is technique. So it always has to come first. And I, I approach everything with technique first. And then she also used to say, I mean, however, nobody will want to hear a technical genius who has nothing to say, <laughs> right? So you truly have to have right. both, but the technique has to come first. So I hope that describes I that agree. clearly enough, but I, I that's how I approach every role that I learn. And there is quite a variety of, of repertoire in, in the things that I do. Um, and I do that on purpose. I think it's good for the voice to sing a whole bunch of different styles and languages. Um, I think it keeps the health of the voice, but it also keeps the performer interested, you know? For, for those mm -hmm. of us who will never get the experience of singing on the stages that you sing and with the orchestras that you sing with, can you tell me a little bit about how you approach, for example, singing Sophie at the Met versus singing, you know, Gilda at a Europe, a smaller European house? Like what is happening physically uh, so that you can get that extra metal in the voice? And your voice is not metallic in any way, but it has to have some kind of extra level to carry over the Strauss Orchestra? Yeah, I'm, this might be a boring answer, but there really is, um, there really is not that much different about how I, for instance, warm up for those two roles, because I truly believe that one has to sing every role with their voice. And so I, I have to warm up my voice in a way, in such a way that I have control over all of its faculties. That means that I'm able to sing Sophie at the drop of a hat and I can sing Gilda at the drop of a hat. That's the goal anyway, right? You have to take care of all aspects of the voice at all times. I warm up to the extremes of my range before every role that I sing. And it doesn't matter if it doesn't go as high as an A flat, but I, I, I need my voice to feel as if it can do anything. And, and that goes for the low range as well. I will say that the length of the role does inform how I warm up to an extent. So I might warm up a little bit more for Sophie than I would for Gilda because Gilda has a longer night than Sophie. Jilda's on stage more than Sophia's. And so I can't afford to expend too much energy before the show starts. Whereas with Sophie, I can, I can afford to take a little bit more time to really finesse things and to go through things and to make sure that I have this exactly as I, as I want it to be. For a role like Olympia, you know, I'm on stage for one scene. So I spend quite a bit of time in, in the practice room beforehand, in my dressing room, um, making sure that everything's in line, right? There are some roles that kind of feel, you know, Lampia feels like a sprint. She, yep. She's sort of like a bat out of the cage and it has to be perfect and you have five minutes, right? And that's all you have. Um, that, feels, <laughs> that feels like a sprint. And so I spend a lot more time really gearing up for that moment backstage. 
Sophie's somewhere in the middle. She's like the, you know, the 400 meter relay. <laughs> I've been watching a lot of Olympics lately. Can you tell? <laughs> and me too. <laughs> right. And, um, and Gilda is like a marathon, you know, or Lucia, right. It's, it's like, it's like a marathon. It's like running a marathon. It actually feels a lot like, um, like having a baby, like the labor and delivery process <laughs> of having a baby, because it's, it's just, it's, just, it's a, it's a long game. I, I actually really, when I had my second child, um, I had 18 hours of labor and I did not use medication. And I remember thinking the whole time, this is like singing Lucia. <laughs> Because because you have to pace yourself. Oh, that's got to go as the promo, right? It to, it's that's what it is. I mean, it, it it truly is, and I've said this to so many people. Singing Lucia is like running a marathon. Is like labor and delivery. <laughs> that's what it is. Um, you have to pace yourself. You have to breathe mm -hmm. in the moments when you feel scared. The solution to that is always breathe deeper. Right. I mean, not not to go into too much detail, but generally speaking, like it is a very similar experience. And when you're done, you're ready to collapse, but you're so, so happy that it's done. You know, you feel like this total sense of accomplishment. <laughs> and you get to hold your Lucia. And you get to hold your Lucia, baby. Um, so before we leave this topic, um, I know the answer to this question has a lot to do with coaches and conductors, but, um, you know, singing Mozart, singing Strauss versus singing Lucia and Gilda versus singing, you haven't done it yet, but like a role like Lachme or Olympia, um, I just feel like maybe I'm not listening carefully enough to you specifically, and I haven't really analyzed it, but that there's a sort of stretch and warmth that comes more in the Italian repertoire because maybe it, that's just the vowel yeah. sounds. And maybe even there's more use of portamento and then you get to singing, you know, Sophie, and you're going for these, I got to get that note right in tune as quickly mm -hmm. as possible. And the voice just becomes a little bit more, you know, a f on a finer, a finer thread, right. you know. Um, can you talk a little bit about, about, about allowing those types of sounds? And is there, that a, that's not a different type of warming up? That's not a different type of an approach? Is that really all the same technique or it's not the are same, like stylistic things in your head? It's not necessarily the same technique, um, but you use different abilities and and um, mm -hmm. approaches depending on the style of music for sure but when I say like I don't I don't warm up any differently is because what I think happens a lot is is people sing Mozart in a way or or Baroque music in a way that they feel it should sound and and they end up changing their voice fundamentally in order to make it sound the way they think it should sound and likewise, they they do the same for Verdi. Um, they um, or heavier bel canto. They they darken the voice. They practice only long legato singing, and they sort of lose the ability to lighten and float. 
So what I am very wary of is fundamentally changing my voice and the sound of it to accommodate styles. I, I believe that the voice, if it's healthy, should be able to achieve all of those styles in the stylistic in the stylistic choices rather than in the sound of the voice does that make sense okay. so it's about phrasing yeah. it's about um it's about maintaining the ability to sing staccato and legato it's about um training the voice to do all the things that you want it to do and then maintaining all of those skills rather than forcing it to go a certain direction and then losing the ability to do the other thing, right? That's what I'm really careful okay. of. So right now you're at Santa Fe, and this is a return to Santa Fe for you. Yeah. Uh, the role that we're dealing with right now is, is Titania, but what else have you sung here with Santa Fe? And what can you explain? I mean, this is my first time here, so yes. I'm, I, it's so gorgeous. I'm like overwhelmed by it. <laughs> Yeah, um, I love Santa Fe. Um, this is my fourth summer here. The first time I sang here, I was fresh out of the Lindemann program and I sang Queen of the Night. That was my debut. Um, and I was pregnant. Yeah, another with sprint. My first. <laughs> Two sprints, actually. <laughs> yes, that that's right. Two sprints in one night. That's <laughs> that role is. Um, and I was pregnant with my first baby at that time as well. Um, and then I came back in 2012 for King Roger, which is this Szymanowski piece that I did. It's, we, we did it in Polish. It was with Mariusz Kwiecin. Hmm. It was a wonderful experience. Um, the next time I came back was 2014. That was this double bill, which was the impresario and the nightingale. So Mozart and Stravinsky. Um, which I really, I mean, I really fell in love with the Stravinsky. Um, it's one of my favorite things to sing ever. Um, I really love the writing. Mm. I love, I love, I love that opera. I think it's very special. Um, so yeah, I've had some really wonderful We need to wish a recording into existence. Yeah, yes. Let's put that out we into need the to, uh, Yeah, a studio recording. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I would love that so much. Uh, I think it's underperformed. I think it's such a gem. And then I see uh, that you have announced a Lachme, a, a Robert Le Diable, yeah. and um, a Zerbinetta is coming up soon. And then you also are going to be making a title role debut at the Met in Matthew O'Coin's Eurydice. Yes. So this next coming season is full of, it's sort of a mix of of new operas and, and old roles. But um, I mean, what's exciting about it is that these three brand new role debuts um, are are roles that are very, very, very exciting. Um, so Lachme is at DC Concert Opera in the spring. Um, but my season starts with Isabel in Robert Le Diable in Bordeaux. And, you know, it's hard to find theaters who are who are putting on Meyer Bear. So this is kind of special. Um, and I'm very, very excited to work with Mark Minkowski and to give this role some some life. You know, it doesn't get hurt very often. So it's very, very special. I only know the 
Robert Toaka Jem Aria right. that, uh, from my June Anderson recording and my, and my Beverly Sills recording. <laughs> right, right. Uh, John Sutherland recorded it. Beverly June. I mean, it. So it, it, obviously, the great singers of the past loved this rep, and um, I think we should do more of it. And then Eurydice. So Eurydice is is going to be at the Met in the fall. Um, it opens at the end of November. And this is an opera by Matt O'Coyne. It's based on this play called Eurydice by Sarah Rule. And it's it's just a totally refreshing take on the Orpheus myth that we all know so well. And that has inspired so much art over the centuries. And I am in love with this opera. I think it is so smart. I think it is so honest and modern and it's beautiful it's singable it's lyrical but it is not simplistic in any way it's extremely complex and very hard to learn even if it's a joy to sing it's just very hard to learn and i've had such a good time learning it and working on it um i've worked a lot with matt o'coin um and I've had a lot of really great conversations with Sarah Rule. And just the process of putting on this kind of a premiere is something that I don't get to do very often. It's very exciting to be sort of like creating this together. And um, I, I, I think everyone will fall in love with it. When Peter Gelb first asked me to to do this role, to look at the music, you know, I said, I really just don't love modern opera and it's all too dark. And I just don't know. I don't know. <laughs> um, and he said, well, you know, he's just finished the third act. Um, why don't you give it a look? And anyway, I, I, I absolutely love this piece because there are certainly some dark themes, but it's, it's light in a way that so much modern opera is not. And I just think that's what's missing in the repertory. And I love that Matt chose this play, which is, you know, there, there are, we're in the underworld and it's about death and it's about, you know, some themes that seem dark, but what Sarah has done is she's made the story a lot more about the relationship between Eurydice and everyone else. It's, it revolves around Eurydice. It's sort of the feminist point of view. And it's it's about her relationship to her father who has already passed and she meets him in the underworld and they get to reconnect. And it's about this sort of tension between that relationship and the relationship she has with Orpheus. And it also touches on the very interesting theme of what it's like to be married to an artist to to live with to live with somebody who's sort of you know obsessed with their work all the time um in yeah, who's always ready to write a song about it <laughs> yeah whose whose mind is just always sort of elsewhere and um it it's very close to home you know because <laughs> Because that is that's sort of like a, a daily theme is just how how to be an artist and also give everybody else the energy that they need in your life, right? I mean, there's just this heartbreaking moment at the end of the opera where um, 
I might, I might be throwing in some spoilers, but I mean, we all know, we all know what happens in this, in this story. Um, Orpheus tries to save her and it doesn't, doesn't work out. And so she finds herself in the underworld sort of for life forever, forever. And, um, you know, her, her, her father has decided to dip himself in the river of forgetfulness because he thinks she's gone. And she discovers that he's, he's now gone. And so she writes a letter to you, to Orpheus and, and she, she writes sort of instructions for his new wife, whoever that may be. And it's so beautiful. It's like sort of a letter to his future wife. And she talks about how, how he needs to be taken care of and what he needs. And oh my God, it's so it, beautiful. Yeah, it's so touching. And it's really actually hard to sing through because it's just, I just burst into tears every time. So that's going to be my challenge. And then she, she dips herself in the river of forgetfulness and joins her father. It's not super dark. It's sort of beautiful, you know? And she just sort of decides. By any chance, did you watch the show, The Good The Good Place? Yeah, I did. Not all the way through. Okay, it's giving me some Good Place vibes there right are some now. Good Place vibes there for sure. No, it's just it's really it's really beautiful, and it's um, it's tortured, and it's dark, and it's and it's funny, and I think everybody's gonna love it. I can't say enough about it. I just am loving it. Okay. Well, we're looking forward to that. Aaron Morley, thank you so much for being on Opera Box Square. It was such a thrill to meet you. And I'm looking forward to hearing all of your all of your things. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure to be here. Thanks again to Aaron Morley for being on the show. You know, uh, going back to the Verity Requiem, when when Ashley wrote to the team to say, you know, look look at this story, she wrote, uh, did you see the Mets return with the Verity Requiem? Now, she's great at writing, but she left out the apostrophe between the T and the S of Mets. So I read that and I was like, okay, the Mets return with the Verity Requiem. (laughs) I'm thinking, so they're back at Shea Stadium Starring in, Mike Piazza in Queens. In, in the, the Dias Irae, when when they have the bass drum hits, it's actually a bat hitting a ball. Exactly. <laughs> and I was like, what? The Mets are playing like an interleague game against the Yankees. And what are they doing with the very <laughs> Requiem? This is incredible. And then how disappointed was I to find out it was just like something at the Metropolitan. I, I, I don't know. By the way, uh, this whole fall season, um, Opera Box Score is part yet again of Opera Philadelphia's Fantasy Football League. It is hashtag Opera on the Ball. Tobias Wright, who he and I have put together a phenomenal team. Week one, it's still happening right now as we record the show on a Monday night uh, with <laughs> the, Las, the Las Vegas Raiders reopening their new stadium. I got high hopes for the draft this year. I I really do. I I think we have a good shot at it. All right, two-minute drill. It's right now. This just in, the two-minute drill. All right, listen up. Here's everything you need to know about what happened in Opera Land this week. The Metropolitan Opera has announced cast adjustments to Fire Shut Up In My Bones and Boris Goodenough, adhering to their own policy of not allowing children under 12 into the house. Fire Shut Up In My Bones will have a 13-year-old Walter Russell III play the lead character of the young Charles Blow, and a boy soprano role in Boris will be replaced by an adult mezzo. 
Good news, the Mets sold out its first indoor concert since the pandemic began with the presentation of the Verdi's Requiem at Lincoln Center we talked about earlier. The bad news, the last two minutes of the live PBS broadcast were mistakenly cut. Worse news, the Met has sold about $20 million worth of tickets for the season so far, down from $27 million at the same point in the season before the pandemic. A red card for the Tucker Foundation as it announced the postponement of its upcoming concert to spring of 2022 due to safety concerns related to the pandemic. The concert was originally scheduled for October. English Touring Opera recently told 14 members of their orchestra that they would not be booked for the 2022 company tour, saying an effort to attain, quote, increased diversity in the orchestra was in line with, quote, firm guidance from Arts Council England. The Grant Giving Arts Council, however, claims they never recommended firing musicians to increase diversity. Only Browns, please. L.A. Opera, slated to open its season with Il Trovatore, has lost its original production on a, sh- on a ship from Monaco embargoed on the ocean due to the coronavirus. <laughs> Opera officials immediately connected with the European design team, and within hours, a 45-member crew scrambled to replicate the set, pyrotechnic elements, lighting structures, and, we assume, an anvil. <laughs> In trade news, seven accomplished women have been elected as the newest members of the Opera America Board of Directors. They are the most diverse new class ever appointed, and for the first time include staff of American opera companies who will serve along with trustees and general directors to bring new areas of expertise to the governing body. The new class of board members includes friend of the show Afton Battle and some future friends who won't respond to our calls. Yet, but they will. <laughs> On the disabled list, soprano Ainoa Arteta is reportedly in grave condition after being hospitalized for a major infection. Her condition was apparently complicated by the after effects of COVID, which she was diagnosed with earlier this year, and by a prior kidney infection a few months ago. We wish her a speedy recovery. Exit stage right, Teresa Zilas Gara has died at 91. In her early years, She was a lyric soprano who excelled in Mozart and other roles suited to a lighter voice, but as she developed more richness and body in her sound, she moved into the Lyrico Spinto rep, including the title role of Tosca, Tatiana in Eugene Onegin, and Elizabeth in Tannhäuser. Carmen Balthrop has died at age 73 after a long battle with cancer. Born in Maryland, the soprano went on to win the Metropolitan Opera National Council auditions and made her Met debut in 1977 as Pamina. The University of Maryland and the School of Music mourned the loss of their beloved voice and opera professor. Although Balthrop's illustrious career path led her to many of the great opera houses, it was her love, devotion, and passion for teaching that always took center stage. Greek composer Mikhail Theodorakis has died at the age of 96. He was known as much for his music as he was for his time in the reserve unit of the Greek People's Liberation Army during the Greek Civil War. During that conflict, Theodorakis was tortured and buried alive twice. He bounced back to compose a number of operas, including Medea, Electra, Antigone, and Lysistrata. Charles Burles has died at age 85. In 1958, he made his stage debut in Toulon and went on to appear at the Opera de Marseille as Almaviva and would sing almost exclusively at the Marseille in the following years. 
And on this day, September 13th, in 1731, Johann Adolfa Hasse became director of music to the King of Poland and Elector of Saxony. In 1909, <laughs> it was the first performance of a Strauss operetta, The Chocolate Soldier, that would be Oscar Strauss. In 1929, it was the birth of Bulgarian-based Nikolai Gyurov in Valingrad. And we still celebrate the birth of American soprano Arlene Auger, born this day in 1939 in Los Angeles. That is your two-minute drill. in just an excerpt of the <laughs> throat-crushing aria, Martin Aller Arten. Uh, that is one of my first recordings of that opera. I now own, I think, a dozen abductions, but that was the first one that I got. And it remains my favorite because of Arlene Auger and that incredible legato execution of coloratura, perfectly in tune and the tone always beautiful. It's a, such a killer voice. Again, uh, here on the OBS, make sure that you subscribe to the podcast on Stitcher. You can just favorite the show on Apple Podcasts. We've talked a lot about the Verdi Requiem at the Met, which went out last weekend. Weston, what was the deal with PBS and the final two minutes? It was um, a whoopsie, I think <laughs> they call it in the industry. Uh, basically, in the last couple of minutes, they just they cut away to a completely different program uh, initially, I thought it was just a local thing, but then it apparently happened nationwide. And um, then the you app. Know, look, look, Masterpiece Theater has value. <laughs> I think this is my guess. I think that they heard from the uh, directors at the the technical directors at the Met that this is going to be a. 90-minute concert, we'll add 10 minutes, right, so it's a 100-minute right. performance. So at the 100-minute mark is when you can put in your local uh, affiliation, sponsorship, whatever. So somebody working at PBS said, okay, sounds good, and hard-timed the um, sponsorship yeah. to just drop right in, regardless We've of what was happening. There. So, yeah. so um, yeah, I think the PBS stream, you can now see it uh, for free, yeah. not behind a paywall. Uh, it, and, and you it, can... It, it, uh, if you look, if minutes, you look so. very closely, you can also find our uh, missing episode with Jake Heggie there too. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes, yes. yes. Well, and Monster Acabier. Yeah. That, that, <laughs> hopefully, that person is not punished by being buried alive. Uh, like, oh my God, Terodakis! I, I genuinely had not heard of him, uh, which is uh, a shame because uh, his music sounds very interesting, but also his life sounds interesting. Uh, I mean, he lived a long, full life, 96 years old, was uh, part of the Greek parliament, uh, was often censored for his leftist uh, political views, um, was tortured, got buried alive twice, 
And um, who's to say that my third time might be the charm? We'll see. And then he wrote a whole bunch of operas on Greek tragedies. Oh, yeah. <laughs> love that. I, I like how they're also all like famous like operas that already existed prior. <laughs> like, I'll do another Electra. Try and stop me. And I respect that. Yeah, I was buried twice and I'm still here. You're going to come and critique my choice of drama? <laughs> Again, I say kick rocks. <laughs> A great roster at Opera America added to mm -hmm. the board of directors. They've restructured it. There's some committees, hopefully, that we're going to see a lot more grassroots action and organization from America's umbrella organization from Opera. It's a truly a great roster. Some very familiar names, uh, not only to this show, but to opera companies throughout North America. Yeah, we talked about Afton Battle being appointed. Uh, also on that new board of directors uh, is Corey Doster. We mentioned her when she became GD of Opera San Jose. The composer, Kamala Sankram. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, one of our friends, our personal friends here in Chicago, uh, Alejandra Boyer, uh, who used to be at Lyric Opera Chicago's, um, what do you call that, Lyric Unlimited program. And now mm -hmm. she's director of programs and partnerships at Seattle Opera. And she's also the founder have something called BIPOC artists or BIPOC arts. Uh, other names: Ashton Baumgartner, teacher and coach; uh, An Le or An Lee, maybe uh, director of marketing and PR at Opera Theater St. Louis, friends of the show; uh, and Nadej Souvenir, uh, chair at Minnesota Opera. It's a great list, and like honestly, like the kind of diverse list we need going forward. I, I think that it's a good sign that um, you know. Uh, it has not fallen on deaf ears, you know, the, the, the strife during the pandemic in the wake of George Floyd's death that I, I, that, you know, something like this is happening with an organization that does have a lot of power and influence within the opera world to do good. And I think it's a, it's a fantastic bunch of uh, ladies. Uh, yes, it is a fantastic bunch of ladies. Hashtag let the women do the work. But also, let's look at some of the companies that are represented there. These are some of the companies that we have been applauding for their innovation and their creativity, right, right. both before and during the pandemic. You've got Fort Worth. You've got San Jose. You've got OTSL. You've got Minnesota. Like, those are four companies that, like, figured out their stuff during it. Like, they were – like, Minnesota was innovative before. They were some of the most progressive thinking in terms of staging and repertoire selection, like, before this – you know, new era came in, but to see representatives of those houses that are going to bring that innovation and that creativity to this board, it's going to be very exciting. It's a great way to approach it. A way to not approach it would be to do what English Touring Opera did. <laughs> okay, you know what? I, mm, I can't. I can't. To can <laughs> half of its band. Yeah, it, it's it's very it's a very they weren't weird canned. Story. They just were disinvited from the tour. They yeah, still have they, jobs, so yeah, they were sacked, sir. <laughs> yeah, I, I do want I do want to point out. I think this is important that you know I I do think that this is one of those instances where um, certain reactionary people would point to an event like this and be like, "See, diversity doesn't work," or whatever, some stupid stuff like that. Um, and I, I don't want to like go that far, but I do understand like, you know, the musicians union, uh, raised a point that, you know, at the end of the pandemic, things are starting, starting to finally look up and you're, you're leaving out half of your orchestra in the upcoming, uh, season. And like, and, and like for freelancers, that, that is a very big hit. That being said, though, I do think there are sacrifices that need to be made. Sometimes I think that, um, for, equity be to be reached i do think that some power needs to be taken away from you know 
old white men. <laughs> uh, and that is going to involve some sacrifice, but I do think that there's a way to look more forward with what you're doing and not think of it as eliminating something to meet a quota, but to like really explore options to expand, you know, into other communities rather than just, you know, uh, cutting everyone off very suddenly. And then, of course, also blaming it on uh, the Arts Council, which did not uh, apparently did not actually give them that uh, uh, that go ahead. It seems so. difficult to believe that Arts Council England would issue an edict. Like right. Yeah. You know what it reminds me of uh, is what happened with Destiny's Child right when they got famous. You know, if you remember correctly, <laughs> they were a, a foursome before they became the famous trio. So I feel very much for the the Farahs and the Latoyas and the Latavias. Like, it's like, we finally get big, we finally get to go back, and and you guys have to stay home and not come to the party. So once again, comparing Destiny's Child to the opera world, Ashley Hargrave at your service. <laughs> That's your brand, I think. I think it is. I wish I had the money and the personnel to build a set from scratch in a week on this scale of Trovatory. <laughs> you know that's not a small set. You know that LA Opera is a tier one company. The set is coming from Monaco, of all places. I mean, I, it does have a port, I suppose. I just... And that anvil is so heavy. The, the, the amount of money just being... And it, this is an outdoor production at the, the Dorothy Chandler Pavilion, I believe. The amount of money that must be getting thrown around right now in LA, it just... It makes me wonder how many productions I could do myself. So look, so kids... we, we Not to bury the lead. Kids are not able to go into Lincoln Center if they're under 12. Why? Because you can't get vaccinated under 12. That also includes employees, which also includes cast members. So any show that has a child, fire shut up in my bones. Boris Goodenough, you cannot do it with a child. Pro tip, here's some other shows you don't want to do. A Mall in the Night Visitors. <laughs> Good. Albert Herring. <laughs> no. La Boheme has like a whole pack of little street urchins. I've, I've got one. Uh, the Verdi Requiem, because the original solo was supposed to be for a boy soprano. Mm. Libra oh, May. Yeah. <laughs> That's true. Yeah. That's Let us know if there's another show that you shouldldn't do at the Met <laughs> because it has a child in opera box score gmail.com. We're gonna wrap this season opener up right now. Good call. Bad call on opera box score. It's good call, bad call. It's the way we end every show here on the OBS. We're gonna start with Oliver. Camacho. I want to draw our Philadelphia audience attention to uh, a new opera company called Alter Ego Chamber Opera, which is going to perform their version of Handel's Alcina. They're calling it Alcina Revamped as part of the Philadelphia Fringe Festival, September 24th and 26th. Uh, emphasizing the queer aspects of the Handel opera and instrumentation includes electric guitar and saxophone. Ooh. <laughs> okay, Fantastic. Yeah. Really, really great choice. Saucy orchestration. Uh, Weston Williams. Um, I'm glad to just be starting the uh, season with the opportunity to give a good call. Unfortunately, I don't have one, so. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Ashley Hardgrave. <laughs> You guys are my good call. I'm just so glad to be back. No, I'm really, I was looking forward to coming back to this. I'm very much looking forward to COT uh, this weekend. And also, I am looking forward to catching up on Apple TV Plus now that I freaking have it. Um, I'm late to the party, but I figured with my travel season for my other job, I would have lots of sitting around time, which means nobody tell me anything about Ted Lasso or Schmigadoon because I have a lot to catch up on. I'm also glad that the show is back. This is such a great 
team of folks to be with. Again, this is the only place in America where week in, week out, we talk about opera. No one else does this. And certainly no one else mixes opera with our passion for sports. We have so many great interviews coming up, some new segments on the books this season. You want to stick around. You do not want to miss it. That's it for this week's edition of America's talk radio show about opera. Our announcer is Norm Waddell. He's at normwaddell.com. On Facebook, search for Opera Box Score. On Twitter and Instagram, we're at Opera Box Score. You can help us deepen our bench of listeners by liking and sharing our social media posts. You can email us your hot takes at operaboxscore at gmail.com. You can subscribe to the podcast on Stitcher. You just favorite the show on Apple Podcasts. Our creative consultants, Oliver Camacho, audio and video editors, Weston Williams. For your co-host, Ashley Hardgrave, and he's out there somewhere, Matt Cummings. I'm George Cedarquist, asking you to continue the conversation about opera during those lengthy football TV timeouts. We're back with an all-new show next week when pianist Irina Meacham and her husband Lucas go inside the huddle to preview their upcoming album. Plus, you get more opera headlines, more hot takes, and maybe Matt. Join us.